Hello everyone and welcome back to Sci-Section. I'm Halima, your journalist for this week, and today we are delighted to have Dr. Fifi Liu, the Chief of the Radiation Medicine Program and the Head of the Radiation Oncology Department at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Liu. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Halima. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so just to break the ice and get real started, I guess, what is one scientific fact that really, really fascinates you? Um, yeah, so thank you for asking that question. Um, and, you know, there are lots of things about the world that obviously fascinates a, a, a lot of us. Um, one of the things is related to, I think, the interaction between the physiology and the psychology. So there's kind of the, the what happens to our body physically and then how that changes the way that we think or how we feel. Um, and so this is very, a uh, very complex topic, um, obviously. And, um, and we ourselves had in fact actually conducted a study several years ago where we were trying to understand why it is that some women, uh, when they undergo radiation therapy for breast cancer, um, they will oftentimes note that they become tired yeah, so we were then studying uh, about 150 women and trying to understand why it is that, they, that there are some patients who will experience fatigue uh, in the middle of their radiation treatment, and yet some do not have any of these types of symptoms. And so from these 150 women uh, with breast cancer, we had drawn bloods before they started radiation, and then serially over um, several days, over weeks, and even up to a month after they finish their radiation, and we were analyzing these cytokines or these sort of hormones or proteins that were circulating uh, in their blood uh, stream. And at the same time, we also asked them to fill out questionnaires to uh, describe how they're feeling, their level of, um, of fatigue, uh, their energy level, their anxiety, how well they were sleeping, etc. So the long and short of it, we don't actually uh, have a very simple answer to this. But there were a few of these uh, circulating proteins or cytokines that do seem to track with the patient's uh, uh, reporting of fatigue. Um, and so, I, so what I think what happens is that there is obviously a very complex interplay between our uh, physical body and the types of uh, proteins and cytokines that circulate as a function of how we are responding to the environment, what treatments we're undergoing, and then that affects our, how our brain, our mentation, and how we think, um, et cetera. And there's, all the, and there's also uh, the, the reverse interplay where some of these data are emerging recently, for example, that patients with mental illnesses that they do have a higher incidence of problems with, say, cardiovascular diseases, et cetera. So I suspect that there is this, this sort of this yin and yang between how our body is responding and how our brain is responding that are deeply interconnected. Um, and I think to understand that, it would really be very, um, I think, illuminating for us to understand about how different people respond to their diseases differently and their treatments differently. So this is something that I think uh, is, is really um, fascinating and, and, and very wonderful and, and, and odd uh, for us to really try to understand. Absolutely, that is incredibly fascinating. And this whole idea of the yin and yang of kind of our outer body and our interaction with the environment, what's going on inside, is this kind of something that we're studying now more recently? Or has this, like the, the medicine, I guess, history, has this kind of always been prominent? 
Um, I think that people have always, you know, so, so for example, when I started practicing years ago, you know, if a patient complained of being, you know, tired, it would be, you know, the kind of advice, well, well, you know, just kind of, you know, pull up your socks and just, you know, um, you know, grind your teeth and just work your way through it. But I think now uh, we, as, as, a, as, as a society, I think we're having a much better under appreciation of the complexity of the, of the relationship. So even things like, for example, meditation, right? And, and, and the recommendation that I think a lot of people are, are um, actually making is that, you know, meditating is probably a really, really inexpensive way to manage, for example, you know, high blood pressure. So rather than taking a whole bunch of expensive medications, many of which uh, may have a lot of side effects, why don't we just try to meditate on a regular basis to de-stress and also it probably lowers your blood pressure. So I guess now talking a little bit more about medicine, could you tell us a little bit about your early days immigrating to Canada and now leading to that process of becoming a radiation oncologist? Yes, well that's a very long journey because uh, <laughs> I've been around the block a lot. Um, so yeah, so I'm you know a first generation immigrant. Um, my parents uh, brought us uh, from Taiwan, emigrated to Toronto, Canada uh, when I was eight years old. That was back in 1966. So you can calculate how old I am. Um, and um, and my brother and I, he's older, Peter. He's 12 years old. Um, and uh, and dad was a professional engineer. Uh, but he wasn't able to find a job in Toronto or Ontario uh, because his English was not very good. And so he had to uh, find job as an engineer uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, where he was therefore working there. And then my mom was really like a single mom bringing up, uh, you know, two young kids. Um, they did plan fairly well, though, in that um, my, uh, my parents bought a house in downtown Toronto back in 1966 forget this, for $34,000. And this was like a three-story house in downtown Toronto. Um, but, you know, but we, we weren't well off. And, um, and so we lived, um, the three of us lived uh, on the first floor and then we rented out the basement and we rented out the second and, and the third story. And so, you know, so I, I learned how to um, uh, identify good tenants when I was a very young teenager. Um, and so that was sort of our, our you know, our childhood. It was, um, it was very focused on education because my, part of the reason my parents brought us to, uh, to Canada and, and left Taiwan was really for the opportunities uh, for the kids. So it was kind of a classic immigrant uh, story. Um, and, you know, we're pretty happy. And uh, my brother, who's the older, who's you know, four years, four and a half years older than me, he sort of bore the brunt of all the high expectations. And so he was the one who went to medical school before I did. Um, and, you know, we've always had this sort of healthy little rivalry going on. And I always thought, well, you know, Peter can get into medical school, so could I. Um, and so I just followed his footsteps, got into medical school. And in those days, it, it was a lot easier than it is now. Um, and my parents didn't even know that I was applying. And so I sort of one day I showed up, I said, oh, I'm going to medical school. They said, oh, we didn't even know that you applied. Because uh, all the expectations was, you know, was on my brother. So that was fine. Um, and then, um, and I, you know, I, I don't know, Halima, uh, if you know what Encyclopedia Britannica is, but my parents had bought us the entire set of, because back in, back in those days, there was no internet, there were just, you know, books. And so we had the entire set of en Encyclopedia Britannica. And I remember reading the cancer section, which was only a couple of pages back then. Um, and, uh, and I've always had this, you know, 
fascination for inexplicable reason with the idea that there were these cells that could just like, grow completely out of control. Um, and so I've always had a fascination with cancer. And, uh, and so throughout medical school, I, you know, I've always wanted to be a cancer doctor. Um, and then as I got closer to that uh, possibility, I realized that there were actually two different uh, specialties. There was medical oncology, which is where you gave the chemotherapy, and there was radiation oncology, where you gave the radiation, which I never even heard of before that. Um, and, then, and then back in those days, uh, which would have been like in the early 1980s, um, medical oncology and cancer, it was pretty depressing, you know, because most patients died. Um, and then I found out about radiation oncology, where it was a bit of a happier specialty because, you know, you got to treat patients with skin cancer, and, you know, and very few of those patients died. And so really predisposed individual, I thought, okay, I think I'm going to do radiation oncology because I don't want to be depressed all the time. And, uh, and so that was how I ended up in, uh, in radiation oncology and uh, trained in, in those days, we could train in both general medicine, which I did for three years training. And then subsequently, then I trained uh, in uh, radiation oncology all here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So the term radiation, what does it exactly mean when you're treating people with radiation or electromagnetic radiation? What exactly is that? So that, so it's basically, uh, they're, they're high energy uh, particles or photons. Um, and so it's like having a chest x-ray, except it's several hundredfold higher energy. Um, and when the ionizing radiation, which you can't see, you can't smell, you can't touch, uh, it, when it enters your body, it interacts with the tissue, and because of its high energy, it produces what's called oxidative damage. It interacts with oxygen, and it basically uh, produces these reactive oxygen species, um, and then produces the DNA damage and all sorts of other uh, effects in cells. And where the benefit in terms of treating cancer, it comes from the fact that um, that the, that the normal cells and the normal tissues have a normal repair mechanism to repair itself from the uh, damage from the ionizing radiation. However, cancer cells do not have that same repair capacity. And so the cancer cells die and then the normal tissues recover and repair from the effects of treatment. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that many people kind of assume cancer medicine, that kind of thing is super depressing, right? Because, you know, you're dealing with patients who are so critically ill and it's such a debilitating kind of disease from that outside perspective, you know? So as a physician who supports patients like these, what do you think is the largest misconception about cancer treatment, cancer patients today? I guess now, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, so absolutely. So, you know, back in the early 1980s, as I mentioned just now, um, you know, cancer was pretty depressing because patients died. Um, but the honest truth of the matter is that we have um, advanced tremendously um, in terms of improving the outcome uh, for patients with cancer. So I specialize in breast cancer and the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the advances that have been made over the three decades I've been in practice have been just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and so we are now treating a lot of early stage uh, breast cancer because patients uh, undergo screening. So about a third of our patients, you know, have a cancer that's actually never detected except through uh, a mammogram, for example. So they're very early stage, highly curable, 
Um, and, um, and, and so therefore it's really a, you know, a relatively sort of happy group of patients uh, to treat. There is of course still the spectrum of the patients you know, who have advanced disease and do not do uh, as well. But I think you know, as within any um, you know, career, as with any profession, um, it really is a privilege for us as physicians and as cancer specialists to be able to share in each patient's individual story and their personal uh, uh, journey. Um, and what I find most gratifying is the fact that I'm able to help my patients um, and help patients differently in different ways. Um, and particularly in breast cancer, because of the improvement in outcome, um, many of my patients, you know, we kind of like grew up together. We have these long-term relationships, you know, over decades and, you know, and, you know, and I became a mother and, and they became a mother and, you know, we share stories and many of my patients have now become grandmothers and, you know, and, I, and they teach me, you know, how to be an effective mother, how to be an effective professional. And I've learned tremendously uh, from, from my patients. And it's really, it's really, I think it's a privilege and, and it's very gratifying to see, um, you know, how well they do. Just as an example, I got a, a card from a patient who I've been following for like 29 years. Um, and, you know, so finally, you know, she's doing really, really well. And I said, you know, you know, Miss Smith, you know, we really probably should be parting ways because you moved outside the city. It's a lot of traveling for you now and you're doing so well. And then, yeah, and then she, you know, sent me a card and said, thank you for looking after me for 29 years. I mean, that's like, a, you know, more than a quarter of a century. So it, it, you know, it just brings us all so much joy when we, when we see patients who do so well for so long and excellent quality of life also, right? Yeah, that's amazing. And I think, you know, you've been following this profession of cancer for quite a few decades now. And so with that, and obviously the rapidly, I guess, innovative nature of cancer treatment, um, what is it or how do you kind of become a really, really adaptive learner, somebody who kind of always has to keep up with the science, because obviously with cancer and being a person who treats people with cancer, you have to keep up to date. So what are some kind of the values or some of the skills that you've learned to kind of become better at that? I think, I think one of the, the, uh, the fundamental characteristic is to be always curious about life, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have that burning curiosity, um, then you always need to learn about things, right? Um, and so, in the in the in the in my world where I started out as a uh, as a clinician scientist, so I was treating patients and also running a lab, doing a lot of investigations and research. It was always driven by you know there are things that I need to understand what I see in my patients in the clinic. And, and there's, you know, I mean, we, we obviously have not cured cancer. And so there's obviously opportunities for improvement. And so why do these things happen in my patients? And then we try to be able to then answer some of those um, dilemmas in the lab by, you know, developing different models, by doing translational research to, uh, to try to uh, bridge the gap between the patients and the laboratory. Um, and then at the same time, we have to master basically both sets of the literature, right? We have to be masters in the clinical world to understand what the latest developments are and to adapt our learnings uh, to the patients that we have and we're seeing right in front of us that very day or that very morning. And at the same time in the laboratory, you know, that advance is also extremely rapid. 
And so therefore you have to be able to adapt again on um, what tools you have available in order to um, uh, undertake the scientific investigations and scientific inquiry, um, and then be able to then um, basically do our best in terms of trying to uh, understand the science and then ultimately try to sort of bridge the two sides together. Yeah, and you know, uh, you are obviously a physician, but also a physician scientist, so you run a lab. What is, I guess, the main difference between being a physician and also having a lab to take care of? And what are some, kind of some of the, I guess, studies or some of the kind of adventures that you guys are taking in your lab? So yeah, so running a lab is, um, you know, there are not a lot of us. I always say that if you want to be a successful clinician scientist, you have to be naturally neurotic uh, to be able to do, want to do that to begin with, because it is very hard. Um, but it's also incredibly gratifying. I mean, one of the uh, most gratifying things for me is to actually watch our graduate students, um, you know, graduate, finish their work in our lab, and, you know, they become a member of our family. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a whole pile of all the thesis in the, in the corner of this room here, you know, which really is a tangible uh, testament of all the grad students' hard work, and we keep in touch, and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, all of them have been very well, well placed um, after graduating from our lab. Um, you know, and, and so the difference is really, um, you know, as a, as a clinician scientist, we basically spend about 80% of our time uh, working in the laboratory. We're writing grants, you know, we're writing papers, um, and we're also learning and also uh, tutoring and teaching and mentoring our graduate students. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm running a, a small lab successfully is really almost like running a small business. You are, you have to be entrepreneurial. You have to be able to capture the grant money coming from whichever sources there may be. And so you need to sort of, you know, pivot a little bit. Um, and so as an example, not that we're doing it now, but you know, now there's an incredible amount of money in COVID research, for example, right? And so, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the joke among some of my virology friends is like, God, you know, we had no idea there were so many virologists in Canada. But, you know, but those are some of the things that you have to pivot very, very quickly uh, that when you see there's a funding opportunity, um, you know, it's like running a, a small business and you've got to, every time you write a grant, it's almost like a small marketing uh, exercise, but that's based on scientific evidence also. Mm -hmm. And do you kind of see this bridge of medicine and business entrepreneurial aspects? Do you see that kind of growing in the future? More medical students, doctors going that route? Is that something that you, your vision kind of sees as somebody who definitely pursues something like that? Yeah, I think so, right? I mean, the, um, you know, when I started in this world 30 years ago, there's, you know, there was sort of a bit of, a, uh, I would say, almost like a a distinction, a almost a, a semi-permeable wall between the sort of the pure academic and then you've got business, right? Um, and it was sort of like, well, you know, I'm a pure academic. I'm never going to, you know, sort of, you know, involve myself in any sort of business or entrepreneurial activities. I see the two world definitely merging now, which I think is absolutely wonderful, right? Because I think in the end, everybody can work, can learn from each other. The business world can learn to be more academic, more scientifically focused perhaps, um, uh, but they are driven by different motivations. And the academic, I think that, you know, we're absolutely evidence-based 
you know, but we also require funding and, you know, and commercial activities. Definitely, um, you know, we feel a need for that. Um, and, you know, and so, for example, you know, one of one of our youngest uh, our, our, our recruits um, is, is a very successful clinician scientist, and he's just uh, formed a company. Uh, with another uh, PhD scientist in our research institute and, you know, and, and we're trying to, you know, and as he says, you know, it's a very stressful time because as physicians, we're not trained to be business people, right? But you've got to have a different mindset. You, you know, you, when you're pitching your ideas, it's, um, it's not the same as when we're writing a research grant application. Um, but, you know, you, it, it is a completely different skill set. And so I think that when it's successful and you're true to the scientific motivations of the work that you do, but you also recognize the commercial value of your work and then to make sure that the two are aligned and you still are, are functioning with guiding principles. I think sometimes it, we, we do get into trouble because when the two worlds merge, you know, we have to really protect and maintain the avoidance of the conflict of interest, right? Mm -hmm. So when you've got financial motivations there, people's brain changes, right? Their way of thinking, their priorities change. And so we have had many examples where the conflicts of interest have not been well managed. And then both the investigators and the institutions run into problems. And so I think it's really important to make sure that everybody understands how best to proceed um, and manage it successfully uh, to protect everybody, the patients, the investigators, and the institution. Mm -hmm. And we often hear the concept of, just like you mentioned, medicine, medical people, they need to kind of get into that business mindset. But I feel like throughout history, you've often seen business people get into the medical aspect, the med medical leadership aspect, without necessarily having that experience. So I think it's quite interesting to hear you talk about that as well. I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about, you know, your work as a cancer physician. I loved going on that tangent. That was really cool. I guess as a physician, compassion is one of the most essential qualities. And so I wanted to ask, how do we approach, as many people often do, their loved one experiencing cancer, and maybe even in their last stages, how do we approach a loved one with compassion when faced with a disease like cancer? Yeah, so compassion, I think, is, you know, is one of the, and empathy, I think, are the two key elements of a, any successful clinician. Um, when patients come to us in a hospital, you know, they're vulnerable and they're sick and their primary motivation is to get better, right? Um, and so we have to, and it really is about uh, placing ourselves and understanding uh, what our patients are experiencing. And that I think is really the key is to be able to um, understand it and appreciate it. Um, it's not feeling sorry for someone. That's not, that's not you know, compassion or empathy at all. It's really to be able to appreciate the struggles that they are experiencing themselves um, and then trying to then advise and make recommendations that would be appropriate for that particular individual. And so as an example, you know, we obviously, you know, we're cancer specialists, we see a patient, we understand the extent of their disease, um, and we have a set of recommendations, right? That's our job, is to make the recommendations. Um, it isn't to tell people that you are going to be doing A, B, and C. No, it is we as the oncologist specializing in this area, we would recommend that you think about you know, A, B, and C. And this is how we would recommend that the treatment plays out. 
Now, not every single patient will accept our recommendations, right? And I think that this is where the compassion is really important, is to really understand why patients are responding the way that they are, um, and then to try to help them to work their way through that. So as an example, um, you know, I had a patient uh, who was a, a ballet dancer. And so to her, the idea of a, you know, her, the physique of what she looks like and how she uh, presents herself was the most important aspect and value to her. And so she didn't want to go through the treatments that we were recommending because she thought it would have a damaging effect on her physical and emotional appearance. And so we had several conversations and sometimes, it, you know, it would be, you, you require patience in a lot of these types of situations in order for the patient and ourselves as providers to really understand each other and where we're coming from. And so I did successfully manage to convince her to go through the treatment, but it took several conversations and a lot of reassurances to her that her fears are, um, you know, she doesn't have to be fearful about the effects of our treatment on her physical and mental well-being. And so I think that that's really, you know, the, the empathy and the compassion of taking the time to understand and then to be able to speak the same language uh, in terms of communication. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I think that the stigma around cancer, for sure, now even with all the advancements that we've made, it's still so eminent, you know, you'd think that as soon as you're diagnosed with cancer, death is the next thing to it, or, you know, you're going to lose your hair, just a lot of that typical stuff. So within your practice, how do you try to signify um, the disease? Yeah, and so, um, you know, again, it is, um, it is a reassurance. So that's the part that, that, you know, that we play a key role here. Um, is that, you know, when patients, you're absolutely right, Halima, when patients are confronted with a diagnosis of you have cancer, and one immediately thinks I'm going to die, okay, that's the cancer death, you know, it's still very much, I think, in, 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 the, in the lay public, that's the clear association. And so what we try to do is we try to uncouple that, right? We're saying that, yes, you do have cancer, but your cancer is highly curable. And this is how we're going to help you to get there. And you are going to become a grandmother or a grandfather, and you are going to see your kids graduate, and you're, you know, and having, you know, their own kids, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so, I think that that that's a really important role that we have to play is to provide the facts to the patients and to reassure them that you're not going to die, and we are going to cure you. And in fact we are curing uh, you know, a very large number of patients. And in fact, one of the, you know, the areas of research in our laboratory where we've pivoted to is to looking at the late uh, normal tissue toxicities of cancer therapy, because you know, we are going to be, so because of the increasing incidence of cancer and because we're doing so well, we are having you know, the fortune of having a very large number of cancer survivors. So we have you know, like about 2 million cancer survivors you know, in Canada. And so that's the good news. Um, and so I think that, you know, that fact, again, reassures people that, um, that you will survive your disease and you will have an excellent quality of life. So it's a reassurance and the facts that we hoped in, you know, to destigmatize, as you say, right, uh, the cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Liu, for joining us today to talk to us all about the work that you do, 
I'm in cancer and discuss a lot of the really, really important things that people need to understand about this disease. So it was such a pleasure speaking with you.